Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we ask of you, as we reopen your holy scriptures, that, Lord, you will not let any of us here today hear your word proclaimed in vain. We pray that you will protect each one of us from distractions, from divisions of thought. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would so empower the teaching, the preaching of your holy word, that he, as God of very God, will capture our attention, that he will fix our affections fully on the word preached, and that we'll be given in truth the ears to hear for your saints to their greater sanctification and for sinners still lost and undone. We pray, Lord God, that this will be the day of their salvation. These holy things we bring before your throne of grace, trusting in you now to fulfill them in answer according to your will in the name and to the honor of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. I invite you to take God's word and let's turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. As we're going to be considering this morning what I am calling displaying God's works. Displaying God's works. John chapter 9 reading only the first three verses. As he passed by, and the he is referring here to Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so reads the word of God, the only infallible, certain and sure rule of all saving faith obedience, and knowledge. John chapter 9 records one event in the life of our Lord, which is the healing of a man born blind. This entire chapter takes us from the beginning to the end of this event with great detail given as to what preceded this miracle to what transpired following this miracle. Concerning this miracle, very specifically, there are at least five distinctive characteristics we must take note of that will help us understand the significance of what we are reading. First, it is only in John's gospel account where we find this particular miracle. Second, like all of the recorded miracles in John's gospel, it is described with great minuteness and clarity. Third, 
It is one of the four miracles John records that Jesus worked in Judea near Jerusalem. Fourth, it is one of those specific miracles which the Jews were taught to expect in the time of the Messiah. For instance, in Isaiah 29, 18, we're told that in that day, the day of the Messiah, the eyes of the blind shall see. And in Isaiah 35 and verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Again, speaking of the day of the Messiah. So this miracle in particular is one of the exclusive works of God that will be wrought by the Messiah during his earthly sojourn. Fifth, it is therefore one of those signs which announce that the Messiah has come into the world to which Jesus very specifically directed to John the Baptist when he reportedly had a moment of doubt concerning if Jesus really was the promised Messiah. I wonder, wonder how many of you remember this. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, some of John's disciples approached Jesus in John's behalf, asking him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Remember that? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, etc. What miracle does Jesus mention first? The blind receive their sight. Do you think that's just randomly mentioned among other miracles Jesus performed? No. Oh, no, it isn't. Jesus classifies this miracle at the top of the list because it points as divine proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Furthermore, of all the physical infirmities Jesus healed, and I wonder how many of you know this, the Gospels record more instances of Jesus healing the blind than any other infirmity. Than any other. So then this miracle... The healing of the blind man is of a very special class as showing the Messiahship of Jesus our Lord. And clearly, this is John's intention behind this recorded event to give one more validation to the truth of who Jesus is as God's eternal Son made flesh who is the long-awaited Mashiach, Messiah. But we also must see John chapter 9 as not only beginning a new chapter, but in fact, it begins a new section in John's gospel. So far in our study of John, we have covered the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Then in chapter 1, verse 19, to chapter 4, verse 54, John tells us of Jesus gathering his disciples. But from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8 and verse 59, we see the growing and overt opposition of the Jewish leaders positioned against Jesus. And now, starting in chapter 9, verse 1, going all the way to chapter 11 in verse 57, we're starting to see the advancement of Jesus' ministry among those who believe. Understanding this context helps us, really helps us to see why in John chapter 9, Jesus is largely absent except from the beginning and ending of the chapter. 
Most of what we read in this chapter is focused on the man Jesus healed who becomes a believer in Jesus as the Christ. But his conversion is not without great controversy among the Jewish religious leaders who confront him and oppose his faith as counter to their religion. So what we see then in John chapter 9 is the kind of religion that rejects Jesus and then the response of those who truly believe him as their Lord and Redeemer. Now, as we, as we begin our study of this chapter, I want us to look very carefully this morning at verses 1 through 3, where we'll consider the problem, the question, and the answer. A very simple outline, probably the most simple outline I've ever constructed in any sermon that I've ever preached in 34 years. The problem, the question, and the answer. A very simple outline, yet with much content to unpack as we do proceed now with this exposition. So to start with, let's notice the problem. Reading John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. John's opening narrative regarding Jesus is insightful. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind. When you compare these words with those of John eight fifty nine where we're told that Jesus hid himself, or better, as we learned last week, he was hidden, and he went out of the temple, it is clear from where John 9.1 takes us that our Lord's work was not finished. Despite the volatile hatred of the Jewish religious leaders back in John chapter 8, where they attempted to execute Jesus, yet such a rejection of these Jews did not put a stop to Jesus moving in ministry and keeping his mission. As he told his disciples back in John chapter 4 and verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Nothing in the world would succeed in overturning what Jesus was sent by the Father to do. And so while he left the Jewish religious leaders in their rejection of him, he then moves to minister to a man blind from birth. And let's consider for a moment the actions of our Lord here. His ministry to this blind man is a ministry of sovereign grace. It's sovereign from the standpoint that Jesus takes the initiative to minister to this man. Jesus is in complete control of this situation. Think about it. The blind man did not ask for Jesus to help him. He was not seeking for Jesus to help him. In fact, he didn't even know who Jesus was. Was. He didn't know that Jesus was even there. He couldn't see him. The man was completely blind. So it is Jesus who sees the blind man. It is Jesus who stops and fixes all his attention on this man to do for him what he was helpless in the extreme to do for himself. Hence, this was a sovereign act of our sovereign Savior. But it was also an act of sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. What had this blind man done to actually merit the favorable attention of God's eternal son? What had he done? Not one single thing. You see, not only was he helpless to heal himself of his physical blindness, but beloved, we need to understand, he had a deeper blindness, which was spiritual due to his sinfulness as a sinner. 
Before God, this man born blind deserved only God's wrath for his sin, despite his pitiful condition as a man born blind, a man who was blind from birth. His physical affliction, his physical affliction did not take his sins away. His physical affliction did not take away the sinfulness of his nature as a son of Adam under God's condemnation. So he was not therefore entitled to the attention Jesus was giving to him, which would result in the miracle of receiving physical sight. No, this act of Jesus was a pure act of sovereign grace. And to relate this to us, while we may not suffer the affliction of physical blindness like this man did, yet we all suffer by our natural birth, the spiritual blindness he had, because this is the gravest problem any person faces in spite of every physical malady one may have. This then is a greater truth emanating from John 9.1 and following. The blind man is a picture of every sinner in the blindness of their sin. Never seeking God, not understanding the truth of God, hardened at the core of their heart where the person and work of Jesus Christ in saving sinners is the most foolish thing they've ever heard. But there, in our spiritual blindness, Jesus comes and gives his full redeeming attention to our greatest problem that has only one remedy. One remedy. And that remedy is the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. And it is this salvific truth we see working out of John chapter 9 in the whole. But it all begins with a problem. It all begins with the problem of a man born blind from birth. Now, following this problem, let's consider the question. The question. Reading verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? By this question, the disciples raised to Jesus, it is obvious they are with him, and they too are paying attention to this blind man as well. But their inquiry reveals hearts that are not showing compassion or concern for this poor man and certainly not giving any hope for his redemption, but rather they turn the moment into a theological interrogation where they want to know if it's the sin of this man or his parents which is directly connected to this physical affliction. But why ask such a question? Why? Where was this kind of thinking coming from about sin as the causal agent of suffering? Well, to begin with, the question is correct in one sense. Now, carefully listen to me. The question is correct in one sense only because the disciples are obviously working out the implications of man's fall into sin. The world in which we live is a fallen world due to Adam's fall into sin as our representative head. And with sin entering the world through Adam has come 
disease, sickness, and death. So then, physical afflictions like blindness is the result of sin in the world. Man's body, his physical body, your body, my body, is cursed by sin and is therefore subject to all sorts of physical maladies. So each and every time you're sick, give Adam a big thumbs up. Your body is cursed. It's cursed by sin. It's cursed. And that's why for the Christian, one of the pinnacle redeeming hopes that we have is the resurrection of our physical bodies. That's why we look so forward to that. But while this is true in an overall general sense, okay, that physical blindness along with all other maladies, sicknesses, and so forth is the result of sin in the world. I mean, while that is true, generally speaking, yet God's word, and listen very carefully to this, God's word nowhere teaches that every physical disorder is the direct result of a man's personal sin. Such biblical cases like Moses' sister Miriam, stricken with leprosy for rebelling against Moses' authority, or members of the Corinthian church suffering both sickness and death for partaking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Listen to me. These cases are few and far between. They are few and far between. They are exceptions, but not the rule as to why people suffer physical afflictions. But for the disciples, they clearly believed that this poor man's blindness was the direct result of personal sin. In fact, their thinking went something like this. This man is blind, so there must have been sin. Only whose sin was it? His or his parents'? One reason the disciples were perhaps thinking like this was due to a misinterpretation of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 where following the second commandment in the moral law, God says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The ancient Jewish rabbis would teach in response to this text that there is no suffering without iniquity. There is no suffering without iniquity. Such teaching was very popular among the Jews in the first century. And it had clearly been picked up by Jesus' own disciples. In fact, the way they proposed the question, and I don't know if you have picked up on this already, but the way they proposed the question is with the assumption that it is the only way to understand this man's blindness. There is no other way to understand why he's blind but this way. Okay, that's how strong their assumption is. But further from this, they believe, based on Exodus 20 and verse 5, another misinterpretation, which is called the law of heredity. The law of heredity. All suffering was to be attributed to the sins of the parents. 
But these broad brush explanations of all physical suffering clearly denied the truth of Scripture. For example, in Deuteronomy 24, 16, God commands that fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sins. And then consider Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So then, how the disciples were reasoning, how they were thinking as they looked upon that man born blind, was a misapplication of a general truth concerning sin and suffering. In fact, the way the disciples were thinking was no different than how Job's so-called friends were thinking about Job's suffering. You recall this? Job's friends believed emphatically that all of Job's affliction was due to one thing. Job had some secret sin he had not repented of. That was the reasoning of his three friends. That was the reasoning of his, free, of his three friends. But his friends, his friends, as God, would, as God would go to his three friends and rebuke them directly, his friends were dead wrong in how they explained the plight of Job. His suffering had nothing to do with some personal sin he had committed. Listen to me. That's why you have Job chapter 1. That's why you have the first chapter of Job. Read that first chapter, and you read about a man who was blameless, a man that was upright. You read about the testimony of a very, very godly, righteous man. Folks, that's there for a reason. That's there to let you know that the suffering that's about to befall this poor fella was not because of some personal sin he had committed a sin that his three friends were accusing him of keeping a secret, of not repenting. Well, the same holds true for this man born blind. So what then was the reason for this man's physical blindness? What was the reason? Raising this question leads us now to our last major point, which is the answer. Okay, the answer, reading verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Since the reality of suffering is so common, in fact, let's just go ahead and say it, there is no one in the world who is without suffering. No one. Well, because that's a fact and a reality, then one of the most repeated questions raised throughout humanity is this. Why am I suffering? That's a common question of humanity. Why am I suffering? Well, the world in its unbelief offers its answers to suffering with either no thought of God at all, or they answer such a question religiously, yet not biblically. For example, the Eastern religions 
answer the question about suffering by saying that we suffer in the present for bad things we did in a previous life. This is the idea of what is called karma. I'm sure you've heard of that word, karma. Karma says bad things in this life result from evil we did in previous lives. And obviously what's tied in with that is the false idea of reincarnation. This pagan worldview of karma is becoming more and more popular in our Western culture since the Eastern religions are making more of an impact in the West. But when weighed by the truth of God's word, karma is exposed for the falsehood that it is by the simple fact that the Bible reveals that we each have only one life in this world, after which comes death, which is then followed by judgment. Hebrews 9, 27 says it very plainly and is one of my favorite texts to preach at every funeral. It is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. But even for God's people, okay, that's how the world answers suffering, but even for God's people, answering the why question about suffering can expose ideas that are less than biblical. And this, of course, is what we're seeing here in John chapter 9 with, with how the disciples were seeking to explain the reasons for why the man was born blind. But when it comes to facing this question, God's word does not leave us in the dark as to why we may be suffering the trials, tribulations, and afflictions we have. And very specifically, there are three reasons God gives us by the truth of his word as to why he brings and permits affliction in our lives. Follow with me. First, it is for a corrective purpose. It is for a corrective purpose. Just as loving parents discipline their disobedient children, our Heavenly Father will chastise His children when we stray from Him by not obeying His commands. As James Montgomery Boyce put it, some suffering is given to teach Christians that sin is wrong and to teach them obedience. It is for this reason that we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and 11, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is why, brothers and sisters, this is why it is absolutely critical for us as Christians to examine ourselves in times of affliction and hardship, asking the Lord to show us if there is any sin we need to repent of. Any sin. Now let me say this. Not all hardship is because of unrepentant sin. So we're not going to be Job's friends, okay? Not all hardship is because of unrepentant sin. But there are times when the Lord is exercising his loving discipline because we need to repent. And so remember Moses' sister Miriam. Remember the church members in the church at Corinth. Those testimonies are there to be teaching us, to be teaching us 
Chastisement can come. Chastisement will come in the life of God's people if there is indeed unrepentant sin. Okay? And always it is out of a love that we can't even understand or comprehend that the Lord, the Lord brings such discipline. Second, affliction can also be for a constructive purpose. Not only corrective, but even a constructive purpose. The trials God brings to pass in our lives can be there to teach us lessons about God's ways, his wisdom, weaning us from the world and drawing us closer to him. One biblical illustration of this is seen in the life of Joseph. Preceding God's purpose in making Joseph the prime minister of Egypt, leading the nation through its great famine, and providing a home for God's covenant people, God first prepared Joseph's character and grew his faith in the crucible of unjust slavery and wrongful imprisonment. None of this suffering Joseph endured was because of personal sin. None of it. What he endured for 13 years in Egypt, under all of that trial and hardship, was not because of his personal sin. No. Rather, it was God's way of fashioning and pruning Joseph to be God's man for God's people at the appointed time God had designated it was for a constructive purpose. But thirdly, there are times when what we suffer is neither for correction or construction, but simply to display God's works in a demonstrable way. In other words, one reason for trials in the life of God's people is to make known God's glory in a greater way. We see this, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 9, where Paul had been given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. That's exactly what Paul says about it. That's what it was, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And in response to this affliction, Paul did what any of us would have done. He pled multiple times with the Lord to deliver him from this trial. But the Lord... Instead of removing the thorn, kept it in Paul. But for what purpose? For what purpose? The Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And with this reason for the affliction, what did Paul say? What did he say? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So then, in some cases of suffering, it is meant in a profound and often mysterious way to display God's works. And this is precisely the answer Jesus gives his disciples concerning the man born blind. Reading verse 3 again, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
while Jesus was in no way denying the sinfulness of this man or his parents, he didn't say that they had never sinned. No, this was not the point he was driving. Rather, our Lord was making clear that the reason for the man's blindness from birth was to put on display God's marvelous and wonder-making works. Consider how J.C. Ryle explained this. The meaning of this must be that the man's blindness was permitted and overruled by God in order that his works of mercy in healing him might be shown to men. This blindness was allowed and ordained by God not because the man was especially wicked, but in order to furnish a platform for the exhibition of a work of divine mercy and power. Fanning this out then in application to us as Christians, we can see what a stupendous opportunity trials bring us to bear witness to our family, to our friends, and even to our foes as to what it means to know a mighty saving God so that our suffering becomes a pedestal for the display of God's glory. And while none of us would ask for trials, I don't know a Christian that would say, I choose suffering, yet we can be assured that what is afflicting us, listen, what is afflicting us is coming from the hand of a holy, eternal, loving, all-wise God. One deeply seasoned Christian understood this truth and principle about suffering and composed it in a poem which reads, I thank God for bitter things. They've been a friend of grace. They've driven me from paths of ease to storm the secret place. I thank him for the friends who failed to fill my heart's deep need. They've driven me to the Savior's feet upon his love to feed. I'm grateful too, through all life's way, no one could satisfy. And so I've found in God alone my rich, my full supply. Only a mature Christian can say that. Only a mature Christian. A Christian that has been well-seasoned, well-seasoned in trials and understanding those from the light of God's word. Did you hear any complaining in that poem? Did you hear any bitterness? Did you hear any reactions? Did you hear any questions? Lord, why are you doing this to me? No. No. No, this particular believer in Christ had truly come to the place of learning to be content in all circumstances. Especially those great trials. Because they understand. They understand. This is what God is doing in my life to drive me more to him. More to him. 
Do you think we all need to be weaned more from the world? Uh, yeah. Every single day. Every single day. And listen, and having the flesh just doesn't help things. You know, having the flesh just doesn't help things. Because the flesh, as Romans 8 says, is not subject to the law of God. Hates the law of God. And that flesh is in me and in you. You're not helping things, flesh. You're not helping me get on with my sanctification. And then on top of that, the world appeals to what? Our flesh. And the devil and all his minions appeal to our flesh. And so what is the Lord doing? He brings those trials. He brings that suffering to wean us from the things of this world to close in with greater contentment in him. Well, as we draw this study to a close, there are two great takeaways I want us to glean from what we've learned from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And these two takeaways are there in your bulletin. If you look in the outline, sermon outline, they're down at the very bottom of the outline, so you can follow right along with me. And the first takeaway is a mouthful, but it says a lot. Despite how hard men and devils will work to overthrow God's work in this world, Yet they will never succeed since even their schemes God uses as his servants to establish his purpose. Hmm. So we see that the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders, okay, John 8, 59, their rejection of Jesus only served to move Jesus into the pathway of the man born blind. What we see in this is that one door God closes is only another door he's opening to work out his purpose and plan for the greater good of his kingdom. Therefore, even the wicked and evil plans of Christ haters only serve God's greater purpose. It doesn't erase or deny they're evil. But God's sovereign rule and reign over all creatures will take their evil and work good out of it in spite of their sinful intentions. Thus Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 15 verse 20, we all know this verse really well. As for you, emphatically to his wicked brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it. It. What is the it referring to? It's referring to the evil. It is the antecedent of evil. You meant evil against me, and God meant the evil that you meant against me. He meant it for good. He meant your evil for my good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph 
clearly understood and was most assuredly convicted of the absolute sovereignty of God. Joseph did not just simply believe that, oh yeah, sure, God's sovereign, and left it at that. There are a lot of Christians who say, oh yeah, I believe that God is sovereign. And I come back and I say, well, I don't. Pause for effect. I believe he's absolutely sovereign. There's a difference. There's a difference. Many Christians believe that God is generally in charge of things. But the truth of scripture teaches us, oh no, he's absolutely in control of it all. Well, saying that leads to the next takeaway, which is going to just open this, open this up even more. The second takeaway is this. We must not rely on our own understanding when it comes to explaining the why behind what we are suffering. Read that again. We must not rely on our own understanding when it comes to explaining the why behind what we are suffering. This is why the disciples got it wrong when they assumed they knew the reason for the man born blind. They were reasoning out of their own understanding and missing God in the process. And did you know that far too many Christians are guilty of the same thing? They reduce the explanation for their trials and suffering to something that is merely circumstantial. Something that is merely happenstance or economical or medical or psychological. But God never comes in the picture as the first cause bringing to pass everything that is happening in their lives. So many Christians live in that neighborhood. So many. Understand this, brothers and sisters. Listen very closely to what I'm about to say here. This is, this is one of the big, big, big truths of Scripture. So big that Christians miss it. Only God knows. Only God knows the why behind our suffering. Because, because only God is in control of what we're suffering since he is the one who has designed it and ordained it to work out his righteous purpose in our lives. If you don't believe that, you're an atheist. Welcome to atheism. And there are many Christians who don't even realize they're theoretical atheists because they don't believe this. Oh, they'll say God is sovereign, but whew, he's not that sovereign. Well, then he's not God. So what do you do to repent of that atheism, Christian? What do you do? 
You do not turn to man for the answer. But you turn to God and you cry out to him to give you understanding behind your afflictions. You ask the Lord, is this corrective? Is this constructive? Or is this in some profound, mysterious way to simply display your works in my life? Help me understand, Lord. Help me understand. What does Proverbs 3, 5 direct us to do? Trust in the Lord with how much of your heart? All your heart. But then, we, then we're immediately followed with the negative. And do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, verse 6 says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight, even. I leave you with this very wise counsel and comfort from that great hymn, a hymn that we're about to sing. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Listen to two stanzas from that great hymn. Two stanzas. This is so, so carefully and beautifully worded. And it is so fitting to close this sermon with these words from this great hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. That's what most Christians do. That's what most Christians do. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Stop trying to figure out on your own what God is doing. Just stop it. Repent of that. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. So stop doing it. God knows what he's doing. He is his own interpreter. And so you cry out to him and you say, Lord, make it plain. Otherwise, I'm in the dark. Otherwise, I know nothing. And the Lord... In his timing, in his way, we'll make it plain. It'll be made plain. Now, I will at least say this. He may make only one thing plain. When there are tens of thousands of other things he's doing that he withholds and conceals from you. 
that not until the great day you then see the full tapestry of your life and connect all the dots. It is to God's glory, King Solomon tells us in Proverbs, to conceal a matter. And so he doesn't have to make, frankly, anything plain to us. We just trust him. We trust him. But nevertheless, he can choose to visit us with understanding and with such kindness to say, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want you to know that I'm doing. But I can assure you, you won't know that in the moment that is happening. Never try to read God's providence in the moment. You'll only see it in the rearview mirror. And that's important counsel for us all. Amen. Let's pray. Our holy, eternal Father, Lord, we thank you for such deeply comforting and even convicting words of truth, bringing us back to you, turning our hearts back to your exceeding, infinite, boundless, measureless greatness, your mysterious grandeur as our great eternal God. We thank you, Father, for turning us, your people today, fully back to you. And we pray, Lord, keep us there and protect us from all such things that would seek to divert our attention from you, that would seek to distract us and seek to to attempt to give us other reasons to understand the afflictions and the trials in our lives, Lord. Reasons that, that are just emanating from blind unbelief, not coming from the living, eternal God who is truth. But Father, we also want to thank you for the trials that we face. We thank you for the suffering because we know, Lord, as your people, it's never in vain. It's either corrective or constructive or it is to display mysteriously and profoundly your works in our lives. And so we are so grateful for such an amazing work of these things that come to bear in the lives of your children and how they fashion us and how they prune us and how they make us more and more into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord, much of which, Father, we are so blind to, we just do not see as of yet. But we thank you that there's a day coming when we'll see it all, a day that we'll no longer know in part but we'll know fully. We thank you for that day coming. But for now, Lord, we live by faith and we trust in you with all our heart, not leaning any weight whatsoever on our own futile understanding. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.